Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Emily Burt, editor. And I'm Lucinda Rouse, senior reporter at Third Sector. And this week, we'll be digging into some stellar multi-layered corporate partnerships. To get us in the mood before our guest interview, we are joined by our reporter, Rory Poulter, to tell us about some recent research he has been looking at into corporate partnerships. Hi, Rory. Hi, Emily. What you got for us? Yeah, so I've been reading the C&E Corporate Nonprofit Partnerships Barometer, which they put out every year. It makes very interesting reading. So obviously there are some statistics that are consistent across multiple years. Almost all corporates, that's 89%, say that enhancing reputation and credibility is the main reason they partner. And for NGOs, it's 95% of it is access to funds. That's consistent. But what's interesting and, and new is kind of a focus on the cost of living crisis that this highlights. So across corporates, 90%, and across nonprofits, 97%, all think that considerations feature strongly or moderately in their planning when it comes to the cost of living crisis, which is a bit of a jump from last year. And interestingly, when I spoke to the people that put it together, they said they've almost noticed a kind of a parallel between the COVID response and the cost of living crisis response, insofar as there was a fear that when it started, businesses would kind of back up, they wouldn't get involved, but they rose to the challenge almost. I mean, obviously there are outliers, but a lot of them have jumped to it. They've started pushing more for lower income households and they've really stepped up and that's kind of highlighted in the barometer which I think is interesting. And another point that it highlights is the progressive use of AI. So most people agree, it seems, in the sector that AI will be a big thing going forward and in the future over the next three to five years. It's not quite at the place where it's used a lot for the moment. So I can't imagine over the next year or two it's going to be hugely impactful. But everyone seems to agree as we go forward and as AI technology develops, is going to be hugely impactful, specifically, and quite interestingly, for researching who to partner with. Oh, really? Yeah. So a lot of choosing who to partnership will be sifting through data, who does it make sense, who aligns with our values, and who specifically relates to our area of business. But there is an element of, are you taking the human element out of who you want to support as a charity, as a corporation, and even vice versa, if the NGO wants to use it? Are they taking a little bit of the humanity out of it? Because there is obviously the ethical consideration of AI, which again, the report does get into. It's very difficult to talk about because it is still quite an early stage in Mm. AI development. And even six months ago, this wouldn't really have been a consideration. But with how rapidly it's developing, it's going to be interesting how it moves forward and how they use it specifically in corporate partnerships going forward, I think. And it's the corporates who are instigating that. It seems to be mostly the corporates, but Mm. I think charity will be using AI. I think it's a question of everyone will be using it. It's just when will it develop and when will we be in a point that we can use it fully without ethical concerns and to a point where it's worth more than just getting a human to do it. I think that's really interesting. And also to come back to your first point, it's a very interesting time at the moment to be looking at corporate partnerships anyway, having been on the third sector beat when the COVID-19 pandemic started out. Actually, as you said, there might have been an expectation that big business would draw back in a way, but we saw some really, really creative and really meaningful partnerships in those first months of the first lockdowns. I mean, the one that I always remember is that Morrison's, is the supermarket chain, hired about 500 charities staff who had been working in charity shops. I think it was Click Sergeant and Marie Curie 
were the two organisations in question. Their shops got closed because we all went into lockdown. But on the flip side, you had supermarkets who were experiencing totally unprecedented demand. So what Morrison said was, OK, we're going to actually hire all of these charity workers who are being put out of work, they can support our vulnerable and our elderly shoppers who are going to obviously be needing that additional support to get the food that they need, they will still get paid. And that was a corporate partnership. It goes to show that when these organisations think outside of the box, and again, it's about that alignment of values, it can be so effective. Mm. So hopefully we will see some really good support coming out during this cost of living crisis, which we know is taking an incredible toll yeah. on everyone in the sector. It's interesting. When I spoke to Manny Amadi, who's the CEO of CNA Advisory, he kind of described them as like a moment of truth mm. for purpose-led business at the beginning of COVID. And then he saw the same thing for the beginning when the cost of living crisis started amping up, like a moment of truth where they can either shrink away or they can kind of step up and get involved. So it's great timing that that CNE advisory barometer was published this week because it does set the scene very nicely for our discussion, for which we are joined by Linda Harwood Compton, who until recently was the head of philanthropy and partnerships at the Brain Tumor Charity. She now runs her own fundraising consultancy. Hi, Linda. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, nice to meet you. Now, you've been working in the corporate partnership space for quite some time. Do any of those findings, particularly around the cost of living crisis and then looking at AI, ring true to you? Like, How have you seen corporate partnerships evolve in uh, recent years? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely the cost of living crisis. I think AI is absolutely going to be already as a hot topic, but even more so in, in the coming months, coming years with charities. How have I saw charity partnerships evolve? There's definitely a real move from this sort of transactional, it's the right thing to do mentality from a corporate partnership to um, really looking at that as a partnership, a corporate charity partnership. They're looking for partnerships to be mutually beneficial, multi-layered, which I know was already mentioned, and also being quite strategic as well and having that shared value. Are we having the same clear purpose? And essentially what, what corporates are looking for now is very much for us as charities to demonstrate the impact. There's there's a big piece around localism and seeing that impact from the, the corporate's point of view as well. I think as well, and I'll go on to talk about this maybe a little bit later when we talk about specific corporate partnerships, but there's definitely a shift now between not what you know, as in applying through applications, doing charity of the year applications, to more who do you know. And those are the way people are getting into corporate partnerships now. So, for example, pieces of work like network mapping within your charity, absolutely crucial now for, for getting these, these corporate partnerships that are really going to work with you. Around the sort of impact piece, another thing that I'm noticing is corporate partnerships are taking on less charities to be able to see more impact as well and sort of aim around this long-term corporate partnership as well so they can see that impact and that they can also get benefits. One of the things that I've noticed now when we've come out of COVID into our sort of new normal is that the business agenda for corporates with charity partnerships is a lot more around connecting their staff, you know, making them feel involved while we're in this hybrid community and this hybrid work community. EDI, promoting well-being, charity partnerships do that really well. 
And there's also this move, again, it used to be very much corporate partnerships were CSR focused. Now it's ESG focused as well. Just because I'm a bit of a layman, could you just explain to me exactly what you mean by ESG? Yes, so ESG is, stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. And what it's looking for is it's almost like a way to assess a corporate's business practices and performance on things like sustainability and ethical issues. So moving away from that corporate social responsibility into sort of like environmental, sustainability, um, that sort of work. And charities can obviously help with that. And then while we're on the discussion of terminology, can you just outline what you mean by multi-layered corporate partnerships? That's essentially what we're here to talk about today. What are multi-layered corporate partnerships? Yeah, so multi-layered corporate partnerships, essentially it's a way at looking at a variety of sources of value within a corporate partnership. So being really strategic as well. It's not always about the money. Yes, that is a huge part of it, but you've got to realise times have changed. Businesses don't have as much, you know, money for maybe things like sponsorship, um, employee fundraising might be dipping slightly. So we're looking at other ways to add value to that partnership, whether that is pro bono work, um, gifting kinds, it might be things like marketing support, social media engagement. So just looking at those different layers that can continue to add value to, to the corporate partnership. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely fascinating. And what's really interesting in everything that you were talking about, all that context that you were setting, it seems like I think you can really see how the recent events have just shaped the evolution of those corporate partnerships. So you talked about the fact that there is a real focus on localism. That's very interesting because it's almost a hangover from the pandemic. We really saw everything become hyper-local for a few years there, purely by dint of the fact that we weren't allowed to go anywhere. So people became very living very deep in their own communities. And the fact that there are kind of fewer partnerships, but ones that are, as you say, multi-layered and deeper, that's very interesting as well. And we know, of course, that corporate partnerships can also be as wide ranging as those charities and the companies that participate in them. So could you give us a bit more detail on the kind of various forms that these partnerships can take? Yeah, absolutely. So You have your sort of traditional charity of the year partnership, which is often quite focused on employee fundraising. Um, You can have CRM, cause related marketing, sponsorship, volunteering, payroll giving, which I always think is a bit sort of understated, but super, super valuable. Affinity partnerships as well. Also, you could have events and match funding as well. Quite a lot of corporates will match fund, especially if the employee is um, raising money, then the corporate will, will match that amount to a certain level. Great. So, so far we've talked about quite a lot of high level types and forms that partnerships can take, but perhaps we could dive into some specific examples. You have a really broad perspective over the whole corporate partnership space. Let's talk about a couple of them. I know that you've prepared a few examples. What's your first one? So my first one is the Yorkshire Soap Company and Overgate Hospice. So this is a really great example of it's who you know, not what you know. So Overgate Hospice is a local hospice in Yorkshire. 
And in February of this year, they had a phone call from none other than Sarah Lancashire from Happy Valley. And what had happened was she had commissioned the Yorkshire Soap Company to do a very specific thank you candle for the cast and crew of Happy Valley because they were coming to the end of their, their TV series. And herself and Sally Wainwright, who is the writer of Happy Valley and is also an ambassador for Overgate Hospice, they had decided together that they would like to do the candles a limited edition and part of the proceeds would go to Overgate Hospice. So they set that in stone. What I really liked about that partnership is they had to act really quickly because they wanted to launch it for the last episode of Happy Valley. So they really wanted to capitalise on this sort of topical, very popular TV programme. And they did very well because the first batch sold out within hours of the programme. They then had to do a second batch long story short £10,000 was raised from the CRM but when you speak to Overgate Hospice and when you speak to the Yorkshire Soap Company they say yes the income is fantastic but actually the benefits were much more than financial you know that was an example of a local hospice really becoming national news Um, and with that what they saw was for both both parties the social engagement was through the roof they acquired new donors new customers as well And the Yorkshire Soap Company actually said that for every new email address that they got from that that candle, it was a value, it was an extra £5 value per email address. Now that, that all adds up. From that, what's happened is they've now decided that they will be official charity partners, which is amazing. They're just working on the plans for that at the minute. But I think what I also really like about that partnership is Firstly, the timing was excellent, but the willing and ability to respond from both parties so quickly. And they talk about they both really used their strengths. So while the soap company were in quickly making the candles, making as much as possible, Overgate Hospice were there looking at the comms, making sure, you know, things like the check presentation was ready, the press release was ready to go. They um, added an extra touch point with the candle. They put a little thank you card in with each candle from the hospice as well. And they, they talk about how they work so well collaboratively together. And it's it's perfect. That's that's what you want a partnership to be. Yeah, absolutely. And what about going forward in the future? Sadly, Happy Valley, one I'm of devastating. Yeah, one of my favorite Such great TV. Favorite series of all time has has come to an end. But do you have any insight into how they're going to build on that success between the, the company and the charity? Yeah, so I don't know really any ins and outs at the minute. They're in discussions just now from when I was talking to Overgate the other week. Um, They're in discussions now about what that partnership will look like. So maybe watch this space. But excellent that something that was short term, immediate and urgent has now given way to like a much longer and, and hopefully a really, really fruitful partnership. Shall we move on to the second example? So my second charity partnership that I really, really like is Marine Conservation Society and Fatface. Again, I really like it because it is a long-term, again, multi-layered partnership. I love that they share the same values, vision, purpose. And what happened with that one is that was around four years ago. Fat Face, their sort of headquarters is in Haven and Marine Conservation Society were having a beach clean in Hailing Island, which is quite near Haven. So Fat Face got involved with the beach clean. That was the initial sort of bringing together of, of both parties. And from that, four years later, they now do a CRM every year. Around, I think it's around about summertime. So they have a specific 
MCS clothing line that they'll put out. 10% of the proceeds will go to MCS, but also they're very much advertising it. You know, every window in the, the Fat Face shops will have the Marine Conservation Society logo, it'll have the clothes in the window. Again, increasing that awareness, increasing the awareness about ocean seas, we need to protect them, especially since we live on an island. And when you think, I really like the synergy because if you think about Fat Face, you kind of do think about the sea, you think about surfing, these sort of things. So, so it works really well. But another thing with Fat Face is they started off with the beach clean and then they did the CRM and then they kept adding to it. So they've got their employees involved now. They did a, a big sort of trek called Seize the Day, as in S-E-A-S. And they walked along the south coast with their ambassadors and they stopped and every shop, I think there's 11 fat face shops along the trek. They stopped at each one as well. Um, and also, and something that, that I was going to say about how partnerships have changed is that fat face actually have a foundation. And you're finding this a lot with corporates that they're setting up their own foundations, you know, B&Q, Sweaty Betty, fat face have a foundation. And they actually gave £15,000 to MCS for their beach watch appeal. So it's another element as well. And they've also done Fat Face have also been the match funder for the Plastic Seas appeal as well. So again, just that layer upon layer and MCSC as well, you know, it's, it's also about the awareness and what the sort of advertising and the social engagement as well is just so, so valuable for them. So as a personal point of interest, I wonder, you mentioned that Fat Face had set up their own foundation there. And you do often hear of corporates setting up their own charitable foundations. Does this ever act as a drain on the sector, kind of taking away funding and attention that would otherwise be going to already established charities? Or do you generally find that those corporate foundations tend to support existing organisations within the sector? Yeah, I think the support existing organisations within the sector. Also, the setting up a foundation also allows for them to maybe continue to support current partners. Again, it might allow also for, say that they have a national charity partner, that, so the foundation can support that, but it also allows the foundation to support some local charities as well which is quite nice. And again, with the foundations, some of the foundations I've worked with before, you almost need to be invited to apply for them as well. So they take it very, very seriously. But I, th- I think it's a good thing. I think it's a really great thing, these, these corporate foundations. It's really interesting how the sort of timeline and the development of that partnership between the marine conservation and Fat Face in that it started with a almost one-off event. And then I suppose it's an example of where it's worked well between these two entities that then it can expand into something bigger. Absolutely, absolutely. And sometimes you just need that little seed to start something off. You know, you don't always have to go in thinking this is a multi-million pound partnership. Some of the best partnerships have came from the tiniest little thing and built and built and built. And that's something that I always say when people say about, you know, how do you manage a corporate partnership? I always say nurture it nurture it even if you just think it might be a one-off I mean if you look at those two partnerships I've just mentioned they were initially just a one-off thing a beach clean and a candle and now look at them fantastic thank you so much and I understand that you have one more partnership to tell us about which features the charity together for short lives Yes, yes. So another one of one of my favourite corporate charity partnerships is Morrison's and Together for Short Lives. A little bit about why I love the partnership is it is again it's a multi-million pound partnership and it's a national partnership, 
but very much focused on the local. Um, so Lucy will tell you a little bit more, but essentially Together for Short Lives are really leaned on their hospice network that maybe a lot of people won't know about, you know, matched the local hospices with, with Morrison's. Again, we keep using this word multi-layered, but the Morrison's partnership has sponsorship, suppliers involved in it, employee fundraising, volunteering, super strategic. And one of the things, the other thing that, that really stands out for me is Lucy was explaining to me that through this Morrison's partnership, Together for Short Lives have managed to kind of gain access to, to communities that they potentially would never been able to access before and talk about palliative care and talk about their services, which I just think is is so, so crucial with the work that they do. And you've mentioned Lucy several times now, and I expect our listeners may be wondering, who is this Lucy? <laughs> so now might be the time to say that we're delighted to be joined as well by Lucy Crisp, who is the Head of Corporate Partnerships at Together for Short Lives. Hi, Lucy. Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this conversation today. Well, thanks a lot for popping in. So yes, straight from the horse's mouth, can you tell us a little bit more about your partnership with Morrison's? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as Linda said, it's a multi-million pound national partnership, but it's one that really has localism at its heart. Together for Short Lives, we're the only charity in the UK that supports children's palliative care and we support families directly, but we also raise funds on behalf of the UK's 54 children's hospices. So as part of the Morrison's partnership, as Linda mentioned, we have twinned every single Morrison's store and site, manufacturing sites, logistics sites with their local children's hospice. So it's an amazing way for community to be at the centre of a really national partnership. It's quite a unique model. There aren't many organisations that fundraise in the way that we do and that run partnerships in the way that we do. Together for Short Lives has got a good history of these kind of multi-layered national partnerships with businesses like Centre Parks and Hobbycraft. And for us, this Morrison's partnership was really amazing in terms of taking it to the next level. We're a tiny team here at Together for Short Lives. There's nine of us in our corporate partnerships team and about 20 in fundraising altogether. So actually, the way that we run these partnerships is in really close partnership with the local children's hospices. We wouldn't be able to do what we do without them so they play a really big role in bringing the partnerships to life for Morrison's colleagues on the ground who are in stores you know locally for raising funds for the partnership every day and yeah it's a big collaborative effort but what we really hope to do is to have a partnership that puts families and children and children's hospices at the center of what we're doing and really enables us to kind of make a national difference but tell a really strong local story as well. I actually had no idea that you were partnering with Morrison's. I feel like now we're going to be accused of doing SponCon for Morrison's uh, <laughs> throughout <laughs> this podcast earlier, because <laughs> I, I, gen I genuinely didn't know. But isn't it interesting that actually, you know, you have a, a big organisation that takes one really creative approach in another instance and you can see clearly a great example of an organisation that is really thinking about what it's doing and not just doing, as Linda was talking about at the beginning of the thing, that kind of classic, oh, well, I just, we'll just kind of partner with anyone and just give some money in a very formulaic way. 
Definitely. And for Morrisons during the pandemic, you know, recruiting the kind of community champions and people they did install, there's a real legacy of that work, which still plays a huge role in our partnership today. But something that's also interesting, which you may or may not know about with the cost of living crisis at the beginning of the year, we heard from lots of families calling our helpline about how difficult it was for them to pay their electricity bills. And we had done so well in our fundraising with Morrisons that we went to them and said, look, there's a real need here. Can we divert some of our funds that we've raised through the partnership to set up a cost of living emergency support fund? And Morrison said, yes, absolutely. So we used £100,000 as a match fund pot, went out and secured another £100,000 from individual philanthropists, from the public and from other partners, and were able to fund hundreds of cost of living grants to families who were struggling to pay their electricity bills to keep their child's ventilation equipment or their temperature regulation equipment online because obviously the costs were becoming prohibitive. So I think another example of a really agile way that partners can make a difference in this changing environment. And I really liked what Rory said earlier about the moment of truth and our experience of working with Morrisons as a partner and with our other partners is that they've really stepped up to the plate. Yeah, I mean, that is sort of the definition of um, multi-layered as well, isn't it? And adapting and responding. Could you take us back to the very beginning of that partnership and how it came about? Absolutely. So it's interesting, as Linda was saying, it's not like, you know, it's who you know. The Morrison's partnership was actually one of those formal application processes. You know, it went out across the sector. Their previous partnership with Young Lives versus Cancer was coming to an end and they were looking for a new partner and they were very broad in their kind of requirements. So we applied, as did 100 other charities were shortlisted that they then went through some kind of senior level stuff review of the different applications and we were one of five charities that was invited to pitch which we did and it was kind of you know your very traditional pitching two charities were then shortlisted to go to employee vote so on the outside it's that really quite traditional process but I think on reflecting we really did utilize our networks throughout that process. So we spent a lot of time speaking to the team at Young Lives Versus Cancer. They were so generous with their time and their expertise and kind of sharing some knowledge with us about what had made their partnership with Morrison's so successful. We engaged with current Morrison's colleagues that we already knew. We also lent on the kind of hospice fundraisers who'd previously worked for Morrison's. Interestingly, there was quite a crossover between people that had been community champions in Morrison's stores had then gone and worked with local hospices. So their insight was invaluable. So whilst we were part of this quite formulaic process, what we really wanted to make sure was that we weren't making guesses or assumptions about what Morrison's wanted from a partnership or what would motivate their colleagues. We actually spent a lot of time speaking to people that worked with Morrison's or previously worked with Morrison's so that we could actually use their knowledge and experience to inform our plans. So yeah, I thought it was interesting, although it was this application process, we still lent very much on the who we knew and the networks. Mm. And presumably, in order to get that level of interaction with colleagues at Morrison's, you must have needed to have had significant buy-in into the partnership on the company side. Like who was your main point of contact? Yeah, I mean, in terms of speaking to Morrison's colleagues, it was really looking at through our hospice network, where were Morrison stores already supporting children's hospices? So children's hospices play such an important role in their local community. A lot of people, you know, individuals, whether they're working for a big 
company like Morrison's or, or working for a smaller organisation will know of their local children's hospice. So it was really leaning on the existing networks that of support. So whilst, and, you know, again, Linda mentioned it earlier, Morrison's have their Morrison's Foundation, as well as having their big national partnership, they do really love to enable stores to support charities locally. So during their previous national partnership, there were lots of stores that were still already engaging with their local children's hospice. So we knew that we had connections with, you know, gosh, I think when we got to the employee vote stage and we kind of canvassed hospices, we realised we had coverage of about 65 to 70%. That was stores that already knew their local children's hospices, which was amazing, you know, we would not be able to achieve that on our own as Together for Short Lives. It can only come through this national model that we have in cooperation with children's hospices. So that was where we were mainly talking to people. And the people we were talking to were store managers, community champions, you know, regional managers, people that are really involved in the business on a day-to-day level, know their customers, know what works in stores, know what is going to really motivate people. And those were the things that we lent into during our pitch and the employee vote. That idea of an employee vote is so interesting to me. So presumably, obviously, you would have been pitching to the people, I I imagine, with significant decision-making power at the organisation. But that must have meant that there were people at every level of the company who were having to go, yes, this is where we want to be giving our time, our resource and our energy. Yeah, absolutely. So we had to really tell that story in different ways for different people. For us, we think there's no better way to bring to life the kind of national impact and the local connection of our unique partnership model than by sharing stories of the families and the the kind of the children and the hospices that are going to benefit from this partnership. So we made sure that we could tell those stories in various different ways to colleagues across the business. We really wanted to make sure that everyone had a chance to hear directly from families about how this partnership would make a difference. But we did loads of things through the vote campaign that we'd never done before. We mobilised like digital ad vans. So we had some pro bono support from creative agency to do that. We lit up famous monuments in London, which was yeah quite impressive and actually It looks like these things can cost a lot of money, but we managed to do things really on a shoestring. Mm -hmm. So it meant we had to be quite agile as Together for Short Lives. We had loads of different plan A's, plan B's, plan C's, and most of the things that came off were kind of plan B and plan C. But we knew that we needed to kind of keep some things back so that we had some exciting pieces of content to share at the late stages of the campaign because we knew that you know Morrison's have got 100,000 colleagues most of whom aren't sat at their desks every day don't aren't necessarily using their phones you know they're out in stores on you know on the shop floor so we needed to make sure that we could keep some things back so we actually like lit up Marble Arch and St Paul's Cathedral that was right at the end because we wanted to make a splash with any kind of undecided voters wow. and you know it's, it is a weird thing doing an employee vote because it was us and another children's charity who are incredible and amazing and do such fantastic work Morrison's made a donation to every charity that was involved in their pitch process and they also made a donation to the charity that you know didn't win through the employee vote because it's a significant amount of time you know and energy and effort obviously we came out of this with a big seven-figure partnership 
But yeah, I think it's important to kind of note that it's a big scale. It's not something you see everywhere. Leaning into those networks was the really important thing. Absolutely fascinating insight, Lucy. Thank you so much. And uh, Linda, you selected this particular partnership as one of your top three. Do you have any further thoughts on what's so great about it? For me, it is the national meets local and doing it so, so well. I actually didn't know about Morrison's donating to the other applicants and I think that's wonderful. I just think that is fantastic and well done Morrison's for that because Lucy is right, that application process takes a lot, a lot of manpower and a lot of time. So I I think that's fantastic. I think something, the other thing I would say is for the employees of Morrison's and I know Lucy and I spoke about this, that well done Morrison's for being so brave for picking together for short lives because essentially we're talking about children's palliative care, a really difficult topic to talk about and also maybe one that a lot of people don't know about. So I think that's really, really well done because it needs to be talked about. It needs funding for it. So that that would be my other takeaway is, is well done Morrison's and well done employees. Brilliant. And just as a final point from you, Linda, What are your top tips for charities who are in the process of formulating and then will be going on to manage and measure successful corporate partnerships? What are your top tips for them and specifically thinking as well about small charities? I think for me, my first thing to say is act like a corporate, you know, a corporate and a charity, they have just as much value to each other. It's mutually beneficial. So act like the corporate as well. I think you've got to have really clear communication when you're starting off that process and throughout it all. So, for example, for smaller charities, if the corporate asks you to do something that you know, actually, I probably we probably can't commit to that. Be honest, tell them that, you know, set expectations, which is absolutely, absolutely fine. Cross collaboration, not just between the charity and the corporate, but everyone and the charity should really be involved. You know, a truly successful corporate partnership is cross collaborative because they add so much value. You know, marketing can get value from it support or care, volunteering, everyone can benefit from this sort of multi-layered corporate partnership that we were speaking about. I think as well, be dynamic and be brave and, and challenge and, you know, look outside the box. Um, just go for it. No no idea it should be, should be off the table. Um, make sure you're demonstrating that impact. Engage the, the staff, inspire them. Um, make them really feel like they're part of the charity. You know, that's how you get the, the most benefit. And I think probably one of the other things to say is steward post-partnership as well, because you never know what's going to happen. It's exactly like the two examples I gave earlier with the beach clean and the candle. Steward post-partnership because you never know what's going to come out of something afterwards. Fantastic. And I'm just wondering, Lucy, if you have any final points to add to that as well, apart from, you know, go for Morrison's. Uh, (laughs) not yet the partnership's not coming to an end just yet but do when it does I mean I think for us you know the benefits of these types of partnerships are undeniable you know we've mentioned it before but for together for short lives and for local children's hospices having our logo displayed in stores on shelves just raises awareness of our work and it means that you know a business the size of Morrison's with a footprint the size of Morrison's gives us really unmatched access into communities that we wouldn't typically engage with and actually be able to talk to them about children's palliative care so that's incredible obviously there's a huge benefit in terms of having 
you know, the funds raised to sustain our work. But there's huge amounts of expertise across a business like Morrison's that we're bringing in to leverage the value for Together for Short Lives and for children's hospices. I think when we think about it, for us, when we're looking at who's our next Morrison's or or what is our next big partnership going to be, we're always thinking about the importance of our cause. You know, we always go back to that why when we're thinking about our approaches and our pitches and applications, going for opportunities because they're available, because they're advertised, rather than because they've got true synergy with your organisation, I think isn't necessarily the best use of our time and energy. And as fundraisers, we generally have very limited amount of time. So actually always thinking about that why, articulating it powerfully and with conviction, that's the place that you should start your prospecting from and your relationship cultivation from. So yeah, that's probably our number one tip. Brilliant. Well, Lucy Crisp and Linda Harwood-Compton, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. And well, that's it for this week. But before you head off, if you love what we do, please do send us your thoughts in our survey, which we include in the show notes every week. We do genuinely love receiving your feedback and ideas for future episodes. Next week, we'll be exploring neurodiversity in the charity workforce, joined by the sector's first openly autistic chief executive to debunk some common myths and find out how you can make sure your charity workforce accommodates the needs of neurodivergent colleagues. Thanks so much to Linda Harwood-Compton, to Lucy Crisp, and of course, to our producers, Inga and Nav.